0: If they get this first down, Jim, John Brady's going to get him in field goal position. He's the first 300-yard passer against the Bills defense all year. and Here he is on third and three from the pocket. Edmonds right in the middle he looks Tom's looking left he's just moving Edmonds enough so he could throw the game-winning touchdown pass and how many touchdowns is that for Tom Brady number 700 all-time comes on the game winner
1: Hey now, hey now, hey now, welcome to season 11 episode 25 of the Sportscasters, it is uh, Monday morning, early Monday morning, Uh, not even, I haven't even slept yet, it's 1am here on the East Coast on December 13th, 2021 as the year is winding down. And the 11th season of the Sportscasters is winding down. Uh, but there's this episode tonight, which will feature interviews, two debuts, and two great writers and one absolute sports writing legend. So uh, first off today on the show, episode 25, season 11, the 10th year of the Sportscasters, the penultimate episode of the season, uh, the debut of the the great Dan Shaughnessy, a longtime uh, writer in Boston. He has a new book out called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics about his time where he was a beat writer uh, for the Celtics and then transitioned to the Red Sox, his first season being 86. Uh, so a pretty crazy story there. And look at again, sometimes with these basketball books, was I dying to read a book about Larry Bird Celtics? No, but I was dying to have legends like Dan Shaughnessy on this podcast. So it made it worth it. And it's a good interview. He was a different, I'll I use the word different guy. Um, first of all, he was very, he was very flexible. He was very, um, he made, he was very he punctual. He was going to make sure it got done. Uh, but every time I talked to him, I felt like he, it was, I was at starting at zero that I like finding Nemo, maybe kind of uh type of a memory. Uh, But it was a great interview, we did it at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday, and I'm looking forward to you to hear it, and that'll be next. Also on the show today, Dana O'Neill, who writes for The Athletic, and has a book that I always thought would be a great topic for a book, and it turned out to be right, called The Big East, uh, about the classic Big East, the conference, Syracuse, and Georgetown, and UConn, and St. John's, and... Villanova and the garden and the tournament and the book is all about that and the business and we'll do Dana after the book club update and um, those will be the guests for today we'll also update the book club uh, sort of in the sense we'll close it out for the year in the middle there and then we'll end the show with some plugs and one last thing so that's the show today Uh, and there will be one more show this year uh, which will get us to 26 episodes which will mean essentially uh, we reached my goal of being a bi-weekly podcast this year even if it didn't necessarily come out bi-weekly uh, 26 52 weeks in the year we got 26 in and that's what I want to get every year and I'm proud of that because I also had another full-time podcast this year and uh, that is the 24 inch podcast and we're gonna get 25 of those in uh, and Uh, That one will have two episodes left as well, one this week, uh, the one-year anniversary show, uh, which we're going to do the 1987 Slammy Awards, uh, and then one more the following week, which we're going to do No Holds Barred, Match in a Movie. So if that makes any sense to you, you can check out the 24-inch podcast as well for those, and that's right on this feed. Something really exciting about the 24-inch podcast, and I've never done anything like it for sportscasters, but I'd like to is in May, uh, the 24-inch podcast is doing a convention, uh, the 80s Wrestling Con, and it's in New Jersey on May 7th, Saturday, May 7th, and Dave and Paula and I will be there uh, to promote the show. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to say if you want to reach people who'd be interested in a Hulk Hogan podcast, uh, 80s Wrestling Con probably would be a good spot for that. Uh, I don't know if there's a sports media nerd who really just has anyone he wants on a sort of sports show. But, you know, sometimes he has the author of a book about Mad Men on convention. But if you can think of something that would be a good fit for the sportscasters, let me know. Maybe I'll just go to it because I'm always looking to grow it and improve it. And I found that the number one way. This is a tangent, maybe the number one way to really improve the sportscasters listeners is to be on other shows way more than social media or anything else. Being on other people's shows, that's how you rake people. So that's why I try to do things like Rush Fans, and uh, I got involved with Place to Be Nation, and um, some other things as well. But uh, And obviously the sports media podcast with Richard Deitch was huge for me. Oh, another way to grow an audience is have an article on si.com, uh that puts the show over um, really, really beautifully. Uh, Have John Wertheim write it. You can get that. That works out well, too. Uh, But that's the plan for today and for the rest of the year for both podcasts. First first things first, before we get to that, the Saints finally won a game today. And uh, it felt good because they hadn't won a game since Halloween, literally Halloween, against Tampa. And, of course, that day, Jameis Winston broke his leg or tore his knee. ACL, I guess it was, not a broken leg, but Torres, his knee, blew his, his leg up one way or another. And although he had been playing at essentially a, replace, a replacement level QB, he wasn't much above that. They unfortunately didn't have anyone to replace him with who could reach that level. Uh, Trevor Simeon and Taysom Hill have been below replacement level. And the injuries have been absurd, and they just haven't won. And not only have they not won, they also lost to the Bills, uh, which is difficult for me. It's the first time it's happened since I was in, well, I've been saying in high school, but actually I was a freshman in college. It was December of 1998. I graduated high school in June of 98. But over 20 years, and I i guess I'll put it this way, if, if, I, if the Saints could lose to the Bills once every 20 years, I mean, I'd sign up for, for that right now for sure. So And the Bills were the better team. more ta- I mean, I knew they were, the Saints weren't going to win that night. They didn't have the, the horses uh, to do it. And one horse in particular, I was saying this earlier to Tammy, who obviously didn't care and was barely listening, so I'll say it to the audience here, hopefully, who are listening a little bit closer and maybe care a little bit more than she did. For as valuable as Drew Brees was to most of the Saints teams he played on, I don't know. There's a few seasons I can think of where it would be, yes. But Alvin Kamara's value to this Saints team is almost more than any other player who's ever been on the team in my over 30 years of being a fan. He's just so important because they have no one else. Watching the Saints and Jets game today, it felt like watching an Alvin Kamara AAA rehab assignment. Felt like there was one major leaguer out there and everyone else was triple A, and he just dominated the game. Uh, and despite losing five games in a row, and it being December and having not won since Halloween and not winning any games in November at all, and despite all the injuries, they are getting healthier, and there's a chance they're six and seven. Five teams are six and seven. Or maybe four, or six, and seven, and one is seven and six. Maybe San Fran is one above. But essentially, there's five teams for two spots, and they're all sort of equal. The Saints don't shake up great in terms of tiebreakers yet, um, but they do have uh, games left against Atlanta, who's one of those teams. Uh, they play Tampa. It's I think Tampa, Atlanta, um, Carolina, and uh, one other team left on the schedule. Uh, the winnable games, the hardest game obviously being Tampa. Uh, and then uh, the others are all teams who they probably should beat. Uh, Tampa, Miami, Carolina, Atlanta. 8-20 on Sunday against Tampa. Then the following Monday against Miami. And then two 1 o'clocks close out the year. They go four and zero in those games. I'd expect they make the playoffs. If they go three and one, they probably will make the playoffs. And if they go anything less than that, they probably won't be a part of the playoffs. Look at—they didn't have the horses in the end this year. You got to remember they had to trim a hundred million dollars off of last year's team because the cap stayed flat because of COVID, and also they had to lose Drew Brees. And they replaced him. They had a plan to replace him. And it was a good enough plan to be five and two. A team that honestly should have been six and one. And it's going to be that Giants game and also the Falcons game a little bit later that are going to be the reasons the Saints don't make the playoffs if they don't. But you take Jameis off. So that's the starting quarterback is so first you trim a hundred million dollars worth of depth and talent. Guys like Trey Hendrickson and Von Bell and others. Then you take away the starting quarterback. You take away the starting number one wide receiver and Mike Thomas, who they didn't improve at wide receiver, I guess, with the assumption that Mike Thomas and Traquan Smith would both be on the team all year, and Traquan, Traquan has played a little. Mike Thomas hasn't played at all, and I wonder if Mike Thomas wants to play at all ever. So you lose the number one wide receiver. You spend a month without Alvin Kamari, missed four games. That's your number one player. Teron Armstead, Ryan Ramchek, and Andrus Pete missed significant time on the offensive line. All four games or more. Number one tight end, Troutman, he's gone for the year. Um, Marcus Davenport has missed time. Cam Jordan missed his first ever game in the league. He's been in the league since 2011. Uh, Harris has missed time, and now he's suspended. Everyone has injuries and nobody cares about your injuries, and I get that. But ask Baltimore, at some point, that's just not your team anymore. And you just don't have the horses. You're a preseason team. You know, when you get to the point where the guys on the field are all the guys that were on the field in preseason game three, you can't you can't win in the NFL. So that's uh, that's the story of the Saints. But really, despite all of that, if they would have won that Giants game, that they should have, and if they would have won the Atlanta game, which they should have, or if they would have pulled out the Tennessee game, which they could have, give me two of those wins, and they're almost definitely going to be in the playoffs. So it's on them in the end, uh, even as much as the injuries, because there was wins that could have been had. So shame on them. Uh, That's the story of the Saints. The Bills, the other team uh, that sort of plagues my life, you know, I have this tug-of-war uh, where I really don't like the Bills in my heart, but I love the people, the people in my life that I love, love the Bills, and they've been so supportive of me, so I try to be supportive. And going into the season, they were a Super Bowl favorite, and four or five weeks into the season, they were a Super Bowl favorite. And I always had it in the back of my mind, and I said to some people, I don't know that it's going to be that easy, uh, but anything I say about them, I'm kind of just looked at as a hater. You know, people just assume like, oh, Steve doesn't like the Bills. He's just being a hater. You know, don't listen to his opinion. His opinion about the Bills doesn't matter. Um, but it was right because this team, it, listen, they got some bad breaks today in Tampa, right? They they get punched in the mouth in the first half, and it's 24-3, to 3, and I take a nap, and I figure I'm going to wake up for the funeral of the 2021 Bills. But instead, they pick themselves off the mat. Josh Allen is a great player, someone I actually do like a lot, sincerely. I love to watch him play, and I think he's great for my community, and he's someone I root for. So no beef about Josh Allen at all. Just like Jim Kelly. I always loved Jim Kelly, too. Uh, but he saved the season, and despite the fact that they lost the game, I still think they have a chance to make the playoffs. They're the seventh seed right now, so they'd be in right now if the, if the season ended. They do have some losses to some teams right around them, which could come back to haunt them, like Indianapolis and Pittsburgh. Although Pittsburgh might have sort of eliminated themselves with the tie and also with the the loss to Minnesota, the way they played the first half, cost them they couldn't quite come back to win it in the second. Uh, so that's where I'm at. When I look at the league in general and I think, like, who would I want to really make a run and win it all? The, the Colts come to mind in the FC. Uh, I like their team. I love uh, Kenny Moore, one of the great dudes in the league. I've been watching the season-long Hard Knocks. Uh, so you get to know players on teams deeper than you normally would. And that's a team I like Frank Reich. Uh, would, wouldn't would mind seeing them make a run and, and win a Super Bowl. Uh, New England, I don't need to see win or be in a Super Bowl, even though, uh, obviously, Bill Belichick and Mac Jones have done a great job as the season has progressed. It's a team the Saints beat relatively easy earlier in the year. Week three, I believe that game was. And it wasn't that difficult for the Saints to win it in New England. Uh, but you, you have to think if they played tomorrow, New England would be a 7, 8-point favorite in that game uh, or more. I don't need them. I don't need the Chiefs. I, I'm disappointed that they seem to have pulled themselves up off the mat that they were on earlier in the year when they were at one point in fourth place and looking like the worst of the four teams in their division. Uh, but they've stormed back. I can't even remember the last time, the last time they've lost. So when I look at the AFC, who would I want to win it? Uh, I guess the Colts uh, really come to mind as a team. I wouldn't mind winning it. The Browns, uh, the Bengals, even though you know neither of those teams are going to win it. The Chargers maybe wouldn't be bad, like watching Justin Herbert play. Although I'm not a big fan of their Derwin James. Some of the players on that team. Uh, and their hard knocks was awful. Uh, now when I look at the NFC, who would I want to win? Eh, Cowboys are relatively... It's been a while, although I don't know that I need to root for the Cowboys. I'm not rooting for the Packers or the Bucks. Cardinals, I guess, would be my team in the NFC. If it can't be the Saints, which it won't be. But anyway, we're jibber-jabbing now, and we got greatness on the other side of this. So let's take a break. Again, here's the show for today. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we're going to have the great Dan Shaughnessy on the show. After that, a quick update of the book club. Then we will have Dana O'Neill from The Athletic. The author of a really great book called The Big East will be on. And then I'll be back to close off the show at the end with plugs and one last thing. All right, let's do it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with the great Dan Shaughnessy. Our first guest today is from Groton, Massachusetts and a graduate of the College of the Holy Cross. He is a legend of sports writing, having spent years at the Boston Globe, covering not only the Celtics, but also the Red Sox. He's on today to talk about his book, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics, and it's an honor for him to debut on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Dan Shaughnessy. Hey, Mr. Shaughnessy, how are you doing this morning?
0: I'm fine. How are you, Steve?
1: Very good. Where are you in the United States this, uh, today?
0: I am at my home in Newton, Massachusetts. Newton, Massachusetts. All
1: right. Set, uh, I noticed your area code was six six one seven, and mine's 716. I don't know why that sh- oh, struck me at 730 in the morning. You know, it's interesting. The book is called Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. And I was thinking about the Celtics, the great team. That was the Celtics and the dynasty and as I was reading the book. But I was thinking about talking to you, and I didn't want it to be lost that you've been on one of the great teams uh, really in sports rating history for years and years. And I know, I don't know why, maybe because it's 730 in the morning, but I'm racking my brain as to who it was I asked this before, someone else from the great team. But what has it been like all these years to play on – you know, one of the great sports writing teams really ever assembled at the Boston Globe. You know, between
0: well, that was a goal. I mean, that's no mistake. Uh, growing up and being in high school and college and seeing, you know, Peter Gammons and Bob Ryan come into their own as as beat guys, and of course, Will McDonough was there forever, and Ray Fitzgerald and Lee Monfill and the great Jerry Nason and Bud Collins and all this <coughs> excuse me group of men, who really uh, just just made sports writing just elegant and interesting and fun and great reporting, and really lively. And uh, our teams weren't even that good when I was uh, a kid. The Celtics were always good. But uh, beyond that, it was a struggle. But, boy, the those, those sports pages were great. And uh, then, you know, the, the Red Sox took off in 67. So we're reading all the baseball guys. And then the Bruins got Bobby Orr. And that took off in the 70s when I was in high school and college. And uh, it was just a, a great Role modeling for us in the region, uh Kevin Paul DuPont, I think is someone you know, and he he grew up the same time as me and and he's in the hockey hall of fame and and we were both came to this business at the same time with the same goals and have been very lucky to be part of this organization and this uh great sports coverage in a town with the best readers and the paper that that pours money into the into the product so uh yeah, a real blessing to uh grow up in in central Massachusetts. Read the Globe, and then be able to join the Globe as a as a young adult for the entire you know a forty year professional career.
1: Yeah, and it was Lee Montville that was the person I couldn't remember for whatever oh, sure. for whatever reason who was on a few months ago with his new book uh, about the Celtics, maybe the teams a little bit before this one uh, they are featured in your book. You you know what I, th- I grew up in Buffalo, and we had some really great sports writers here in the Buffalo News. I mean. I swear by the late, great Jim Kelly, you know, being a hockey guy, he was my favorite, unbelievable. And uh, for a city like Buffalo, not quite as big as Boston, I thought we were, we were pretty blessed with some really great people here, Vic Creechie yeah. as well. Um, but when I, when I think about basketball beat writers, I really do think about Boston. You know, when I think about basketball in general, I think about SI. You know, I think about Frank DeFord, um, who – I was blessed to have on here, people before him, um, up to Lee Jenkins, um, who's now with the Celtics, but was unbelievable uh, to me at the start of this podcast for the first eight years. I think he was on 20 times, taught me a lot about podcasts and really just how to treat people, an amazing human being. Uh, But when I think about it nationally, I think about SI, but when I think about it locally, when I think about basketball beat writers, I think about the Boston Globe and and the writers that have always come through there it's been an unbelievable just treasure trove of talent over the years
0: yes i mean you know this goes back the celtics were invented in 1946 and jack barry was a wonderful man who was covering the team and jack barry invented the word turnover i mean when the ball changes hands due to a mistake by the, wow. the offense <laughs> and uh he says oh just like the just like the cherry turnovers we eat at christmas time or whatever turnover and um so it goes back to there and 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 red Auerbach, you know he he kind of cultivated the local writers he had a lot of friends at the boston herald and then the globe uh, young bob ryan comes in in the late 60s and just reinvents the way the sport is covered and makes himself the de facto commissioner of basketball we call him and uh sure big time and and i i directly followed in his footsteps and then gave the beat back to him but we had it continuously for like 20 years just a little 4 year span for me but he had Pretty much all of the seventies and a good chunk of the eighties, and and um, and then passed on from there to Jackie McMullen, Peter May, yeah, uh, just you know right up to today. We got Gary Washburn, a- Adam Himmelback and it's always been a prestigious beat and a well-covered beat for the Boston Globe.
1: Well, it's really interesting for someone who's kind of a sports media nerd like me to kind of read about your time sort of walking into the beat. And there's a really interesting story in the book, I thought, where you are really new to the job. And you're out at the bars because you know it's this different time. You're traveling with the team. You're hanging out with the team. You know, going to going to McDonald's with Larry Bird in Indiana. And, but there's this part earlier in the book, and you you uh, you buy a round of drinks for the guys, and um, it's received well. And then you buy a second round of drinks for the guys, and it's not received as well. It's uh, maybe looked at as you're trying to buy your way into the to favor the players or something, but. Forget about the, the beers themselves, but it's just interesting to me to think about what it must have been like cracking into the beat and trying yeah. to integrate it, yourself like that, you know?
0: It was. It was a challenge. First of all, you know, Ryan had been with the team forever in the whole. This team won a championship in 81. Larry Bird's a rookie in 79. Parrish and McHale come on board in 80. And then they win the championship in 81. So they're established and they're stars. Maxwell's already there. And... uh and Bob left after the eighty one eighty two spring, and I come in in 82, 83, and so, you know, I'm not trusted, new guy, and uh, they've had this great Bob Ryan all this time, so that was suspect by nature. Larry's not trusting with strangers to start with, of course, and I understand that. He's shy and grew up in rural southern Indiana, and so, so yeah, first night before the, uh, the first opening seat regular season game in Richfield, Ohio, they're playing the Cavaliers, and Staying at a Holiday Inn. That sounds funny today, but it was a Holiday Inn in Richfield, Ohio. And I go down to the bar, and night before the game, and Larry's sitting with Quinn Buckner at one end, and the place is empty, and I sit at the other end, and I send a couple of beers down. And Buckner kind of acknowledged me and tipped his bottle my way, and I had minded my business, read my papers, ate my cheeseburger, and then got up to leave and said, I'll send those fellas another one. You know, big blunder. <laughs> so I uh, <laughs> send it down, and the, bar, the barkeep... You see Larry shake his head, no, never even looked up. Nope. And uh I asked Quinn Buckner about it thirty seven years later. He says, I'll tell you what that was. That's that's Larry asserting, you know, the the he's not gonna be bought by you. He's not gonna be beholden to you. Did not want to owe you. Have to answer something down the road because uh you bought us a couple of beers. So he was just sort of setting the ground rules there and, and he was right. He blocked my shot and he was right and and uh never talked to him about it. I didn't tell anyone about it. It was so embarrassing. But uh, there it is in the book, and it's a it's a scene. It starts off chapter three, and it kind of leads you into um, where we're headed in this book. This book is like uh, it's it's like the Great Gatsby, and I'm Nick Carraway, and they are Gatsby. I'm just uh, the uh, the narrator sure. telling you what it's like to be around these guys, and and the whole time. And that's kind of one of the reasons you know for for doing the book, Steve, is just that everybody knows who won the games and who was MVP and All Star and all that stuff. It's all documented, so we're not going play-by-play play over old games. What this is, is is a look into when the NBA you know, was still small and the media was around them and we had the ability to tell you what the players were like. You don't see that with today's Globe or any coverage of, of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Ime Odoka. do they like him, do they like each other, what's going on? Well, we could tell you that. We could tell you what they were like if they liked Fitch, if they liked Casey Jones, if they liked each other. Who gets mad at who? Because we were literally on the team. I mean, we didn't have the fame or the groupies or or the money, but we were with them. We were on the buses going to practice. Right. We were in the hotels, in the bars, waiting for bags, flying commercial. Really, it was it was just like and you know we're sitting right next to the bench. Those seats weren't being monetized for thousands down down there. Then they had the the lowly media right next to the bench, so you could hear everything. So there was a great deal of information that was uh, available to us and the ability to tell the readers uh, the fans what the players are like and i think that's an advantage for fans uh, you have less guessing people now guess oh i don't think uh, brown likes Tatum people are no one knows cuz no one's ever around him and they can't get there and it's nobody's fault the big moat has separated things and now with abundance of caution and covid it's they're not in the room at all and you can't get near yeah, anybody
1: barely getting so the same uh, that
0: that was kind of a driving force behind putting this book together and it's a it's a look back at that time because when when Larry and Magic came into the league in '79, you know the finals were on tape delay and you know teams were losing money and there was drug issues in the league and wasn't that popular and but uh, it, it grew it grew quickly and the Bird Magic Celtic Laker thing took off in the '80s. Those three rounds it was like Ali Frazier one two and three. They kept going at each other and really put the league on the map in a big way. Then then of course Michael Jordan comes in in '84 and, and leads right into the Last Dance and uh, the Barcelona Dream Team in 92 when the sport under David Stern took off as a global entity and the monster that it is today. So this is sort of a... You see the evolution of of a league uh, through the pages of this book.
1: Yeah. This summer, uh, John Wertheim wrote a book called Glory Days about the summer of 84, and he had some really interesting stuff about being in the town. You mentioned the 92 Olympics, but he was in the same town uh, as the the, um, tryouts for the 84 team, and he wrote about some... Just kind of cool things like, you know, go like literally, uh, as in your book, going to a McDonald's um, uh, with some of the guys that were on the team. I don't know if it was Jordan or if it was Barkley, someone like that. And it was interesting because in your book, uh, you wrote about being in, I think it was Indiana with Bird or or somewhere, and and going to, and the reason I bring it up is because I think about the story we just talked about where you started, and then I think about, you know, a few years later, and you're going to lunch with Larry, and and I just wonder. Obviously, as someone who loves sports writing and sports media, when I think of Don, uh, excuse me, Dan Chauncey, I think of one of the great writers of all time. But I wonder, as I was reading this book, is one of the great skills of Dan Chauncey not just the prose, but the ability to go from uh, the bar where the drink gets turned down to the McDonald's where you're sharing the Big Mac or whatever. You know? We, well, thank we, you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, it was never like I became pals or anything, but when you're in a small group like that, it's like being in high school or or your college dorm or I don't know. I'm sure people in the military experience that. You're, you're just together all the time, and um, there weren't that many of us. So, and there was a lot of teasing and you know, make fun of somebody's pants or anybody who could get anything on anybody was became fair game. Right. So you have that in a in a small traveling group because you're just you're forced to be together all the time. And waiting for baggage, you know. I remember being in the airports. You know, flights delayed. If you said to Kevin McHale, "Hey, you want to get some some breakfast?" He'd go for it every time because it was free. And uh, then he'd give you a couple of stories, and he'd get his free breakfast, and you'd sign it off and expense it with the Globe, and it was a win-win for everybody. Yeah. I talked to Kevin about that for the book, and just because we were together, uh, you had that ability. So I would never approximate that I was friends with anybody or buddy buddy. It wasn't like that, but there was a level you know if you were around enough and didn't screw them over like say hey bert had 14 beers at the bar last night which really is nobody's business as long as he's performing on the floor the next day uh you you know you you would be trusted to to be around with that and if you violated that then then you were on the outside i was never a deep deep insider but enough so that you know i could if i if i came into the lounge at night and saw a bunch of them i could you know i could come over and break chops so they might there's a lot of scenes in the book where I'm sitting, minding my business, and somebody comes over to break chops with me. Can it be Bird and Buckner, can it be uh, Bill Walton, uh, and M.L. Carr, and they just got something to say, and they they sit themselves down and and go at it. So, uh, yeah, it was again being part of the traveling group. But it, there were times you kind of pinch yourself. It's like well, a lot of people would really think this is super cool because we're just like it's like we're with the Beatles here let's go
1: yeah you know it's interesting talking about the travel because that was something that I thought Monfield covered pretty cool in his book and I was thinking about it in yours as well Is you know these seven game series as they got into the playoffs especially when they play the Lakers you know and they'd be making these cross-country trips back and forth a few times and um, you know uh, literally on coach back then you know not the way athletes travel now and and you were a part of this, and I just wonder: can you expand a little bit more on the traveling life? And 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 I wonder because Monfield talks a lot about, and this is what I'm more interested in from you. Talks a lot about how it affected the games and the players. Did it affect you as a sports writer? Do you ever look back at your stuff and think like, "Man, I was a little off. I, maybe that eight-hour flight. Now, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like,
0: did it yeah. affect
1: your performance, your game a little bit? Being
0: I would I would say no, because again, you're young. And, and they're they're doing a lot for you when you're with the team. You they're making all the bookings in hotels. You're not getting caught up in the minutiae of it. Sure. Uh, I mean the the globe would reimburse them, but they would just hand you the plane ticket. You get to the airport and the trainer's giving you your ticket. And here's where you're sitting. See you later. And then when you get to the hotel, you wait for all the players to get their keys and you go up and there's a key with Dan Shaughnessy on it. You know, room 411. And you just go up to your room. So it was just kind of. Stuff was done for you in that way, and the buses right there. You weren't as responsible to get your get your ass to the arena, to the hotel, to the airport. You just rode along, because players aren't going to take on that responsibility. They do everything for them. So, as part of it, they were doing everything for us. So it did make it easier. But the 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 physical part of it, and you know, again, I was you're young. We're all young at that point. But you know, you you play in. Uh, Cleveland on a on a Sunday night. Excuse me, uh, on a Friday night, and then you got to be in Atlanta on Saturday night. So the rules are the first commercial flight out on on Saturday. So, you know, if you have a couple late at night and on Friday night after the game, better be ready for a 5 a.m. wake up call to be on the bus at at 6 a.m. to go to the Atlanta uh, to go to the Cleveland airport to get to Atlanta for Saturday night's game. You just if you're going to play, you had to pay, and that was you know early wake ups was was the harder part of it. Then you get to the next city and take a nap like that, but having the hotels done, the planes, and the buses done for you that that certainly made it doable, but I wasn't running around for forty eight minutes on the court and n b a level every night sure. we were just trying to make trying to make deadline and keep ourselves healthy and and aware of what was going on and and not let things not miss things and cover the team and and serve the readers.
1: One word i keep I keep hearing a lot is expense report, and I wonder. Was one of the great tools in the in the the toolbox of Dan Shaughnessy, the 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 Boston Globe expense report was that really an asset for you? You know what I mean. Well, I mean, of... sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you're not paying on your own dime here. You got to keep track of that. everything you're spending. You're getting reimbursed for, so that's good. But it's supposed to be that way when you're on the job working. So yeah, that was good. And if you if you buy a round of drinks, you know, you just expense that. Yeah. So it's not really costing anything. So that's kind of a good thing. we didn't have much and we didn't have certainly like like money like they had but uh yeah you're you're living a pretty good life and you're seeing america i mean you know i'd see friends i went to high school or college with all over the country because i'm going to be in sacramento next week you around or you know people you'd never see i had family in colorado my sister i'd see when they would play the nuggets my brother i'd see when they would play phoenix um that was kind of a treat you know i had a friend in seattle i went to high school with you'd be able to keep up with folks all over the country because you coming through there there was like 23 cities in the league and we're coming through so i enjoyed that part of it i mean the burden came down on my wife trying to raise you know three little babies back here with you know buying houses moving and all that stuff going on that's that's the hard part right. uh, for me being out there with these jokers uh, was just a matter of survival and and having fun writing stories and living the dream no one wants to hear me complain about that it was sweet but it, it, it is physically harder and it's harder to travel now for anyone because travel's harder now, and you're on your own, and you're not, <laughs> no one's <laughs> buying your ticket, or having your bag, you know, be there, or, or um, you know, doing the hotel reservations for you, having your key just sit there when you walk in, I mean, uh, you don't have those, uh, traveling's tough now, and I mean, it's, yeah, it's a no comparison, that that was pretty easy travel, just the early wake-ups, and, and the amount of it, we would do like seven cities in a 10-game West Coast trip, and that that's grueling for anybody. I don't care how much they're making the arrangements. That's grueling.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a sports writer I follow on Twitter who hasn't one time tweeted about being stuck in an airport for 18 hours or something oh, yeah. after a game, you know? Comes uh, with the business. Man. Yeah. Uh, one thing, I, I think it was Jeff Perlman and I, when he wrote his USFL book, we were talking about this, about how you know, it was easy to get those interviews because a lot of times when he was talking to people, that was the best thing they did in their life playing in the USFL, and I've been thinking about that ever since, and uh thinking about when i do interviews and people i talk to and when someone writes a a book like you did here where it's sure about basketball you know and and the celtics and larry bird and those things but it's also very personal and about your life and about um things that you went through and i wonder like is this that case and of course you know we have a wife. We both have wives, and I have a daughter. You have three kids. You said, so I don't mean that, but I mean like, was this the best thing you did in your life? You know, like being a part of this um, professionally. I guess I mean, you know what I mean. Is that is that part of what made motivated you to write this and um, maybe has it helped you kind of get through the grind of all the interviews and promoting it and all that kind of a thing? Is it, have you been enthusiastic to just relive this era and these stories because of that reason or?
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I think that, you know, I was just watching the last dance back in the early days of the COVID bubble when there was no, yeah. no games. Like and uh, it was such a dark area. And, and the show and the, Celtic classics, and I kept seeing my my 30-year-old self sitting at the press table with the giant Michael Caine glasses and the big head of hair, and <laughs> I'm like, I remember those days. I'm sitting, I'm right there. I remember and, that uh, guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got some stories, so and, you know, I wrote a piece for the Globe on myself and Larry Bird and just what it was like back then, and again, there's no games. We're just filling the space here, and my agent got on that and says, yeah, you've been telling those stories for 30 years. Why don't you do a book on that? And, and we were able to find a Agreeable publisher on that, and made it worth doing. And everybody, people were around. It was easier to get people than usual because if you're trying to track down Bill Walton or Cedric Maxwell or ML Carr, there, most everybody's home because it's early days of pandemic. And that summer, you were able to, was able to frame out the story and get my old journals and get the Globe microfilm and and uh, I had Bob Ryan and I kept meticulous notebooks from that time and cobble it together and then go back and get the voices and fill in some blanks, and, and uh, have yourself a nice little uh, memoir here. So, yeah, it was, it was a little bit more fun than usual to assemble. It's very linear, and, and uh, it's very gratifying to have it now because people really, people really like this book. I, there's, there's a lot of appetite for the Celtics of that era, and we don't want to promote the book by saying it was so much better then than it is now, <laughs> even though that's true. And um, yeah, watching the highlights of the way they played and then getting into these stories of, of what they were like, is is really fun and it was a fun thing to recapture and it's kind of sweet and lovely the way they interact with one another now you know just these scenes you'll see early in the book and at the end about you know guys still breaking each other's chops and see each other at, you know like if 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 quinn buckner is doing broadcast for indiana and max is doing broadcast for the celtics they'll just have these inside jokes in the press room and you know, ML Kale visiting Kevin. Excuse me, ML Carr visiting Kevin McHale. Yeah. After Kevin lost his daughter and giving him a big hug and a surprise visit, and oh my. And just uh, you know, Rick Roby going drinking with Larry Bird at Christmas time, still all these years later when they're in their sixties, it's just, it's just fun stuff to uh, go back to. And of course, Bill Walden's his great voice in the book, and every time he opens his mouth, it's just this. this Hyperbole! This this surge of of beautiful words about the best time in his life, and and that's why the book is titled what it is. Bill Walden's the one who said it was yeah, the best Walden. time in my life, yeah. and I wish it lasted forever. Yeah.
1: The sports are here with the the great Dan Shaughnessy, whose book "Wish It Lasted Forever," life with the Larry Bird Celtics is as good of an idea as I can think of uh, for a stocking stuffer or something like that for Christmas. Um, I, Mr. Shaughnessy, I respect you as one of the great sports writers of all time, and. Who am I to question anything you've ever done? But I do think that maybe I do have to wonder what the hell you were thinking. challenging Larry Bird to a free throw contest, though.
0: Well, fact was <laughs> he challenged me. It was, it was my dope, my, my my bad to to accept the challenge. It was made for a good story over the years. But you know he was taping his hand during practice in the '85 playoffs, and and I challenged his ability to play with tape on his hand the next game. I'd never seen him have his hand taped, and it was really taped for practice and as a shooting hand, and uh. He just, it, he must have done this before. He denies it, but when I asked the question, he he wanted to make a little scene. He said, Scoop, I could tape my whole hand up and make more shots than you. And I said, yeah, yeah, maybe, but that's not really what we're here to do. And he says, no, no, that's what we're going to do. We're going to tape our hands, and we'll see. So he taped his hand like he had a boxing glove on. It was just a fist, no no fingers, no thumb, just a, a shot put in those free throws. And he said, we'll do 10... Ten rounds of ten, five dollars a throw. So I figured, hey, I was a pretty good free throw shooter in high school. If I miss five hundred, he makes five hundred. It's you know, it'll be five hundred bucks if he makes them all and I miss them all. What's the worst that can happen? Well, he, he did figure it out in the second round, and he made he made eighty six out of a hundred with his hand like that. And I was rebounding for him, and they were all just coming through. And and then I started to see five dollar bills flying through the air every time I was letting go. I was choking down the other end, and it was one hundred and sixty bucks and. Uh, I brought it to the to the garden the next night and gave it to him for the game. He stuffed it in his sock and played with my money in his shoe. And, and to this day, if you ever run into Larry Bird say, what did you take Scoop for in 1985? He'll say, I got $160 in my pocket. <laughs> well, I love it. Cause, know,
1: yeah, I love that story. And I love it. you mentioned how they called you Scoop, and that wasn't necessarily uh, a flattering um, nickname. Correct. Yeah, but we could probably leave that for the book for people reading it, but uh, how that came about. I want to ask you this because I'm running out of time, but... um. You left the the Celtics beat for the Red Sox beat, and you really picked a good time um, to do it because it was the 86 team then. And um, for years and years and years, I mean, when you thought about the Red Sox, obviously the narrative's changed since 2004. But almost my whole life, the the 86 World Series is the second one I remember watching. Royals, the first one, and this one, the second one. So I was born in 1980. But um, it's interesting because you talked a few times about the last dance. And uh, that documentary, which included a lot, like you said, of of your time. Now, recently, there was just a multi-parter about the '86 Mets, um, which also included a, a lot of your work. You know, your work in the sense of what you were writing about and working about. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how, how to necessarily ask this, but when you look back and you think, okay, as with the Celtics, and maybe you know some of the most important games and moments of that franchise. And then I went to the Red Sox. I was with them for certainly one of the most memorable moments, not only for them, but Major League Baseball history. And then when it's time to take stock and look back at your career, do you feel grateful? You know, do you feel – does it feel a certain way to have been there for those moments? Like I think about Mike Harrington right now. Yes. He's a Buffalo News sports writer, right? He's a good guy. He's on here all the time. And he, he swears to me it doesn't matter to him. That he's been covering the Sabres for the last ten years when nothing has happened, but misery, right? But I, I yeah. don't, I don't buy that. I, I, and I wonder for you, like, do you look back and say, "Wow, what a time I got to be there for Buckner"? You know, I got to be there for yeah. Bird against the Suns or whatever. You know, you know what I'm kind of asking.
0: Yeah, I do say, and I, I, I understand your, your, your friend about the ten years in Buffalo, and that, that is a little bit dreadful. I mean, I, I, I'm in the school of. Hey, if they don't win, that's not my problem as long as the stories are good. Right. You know, but it's obviously when when people care about your team, that's what you want. You want to be writing about a team that people care about. And if they're all over the sabres because they care about them and they, they hold them to a higher standard and they're vigilant, then that's an exciting beat to cover, even if they're bad. It's it's when people don't care and you're covering something nobody's reading or paying attention to, that would be deadly. But I did and and to answer your question, yes, it was special to I mean, you. I listened to you talk. There, I was thinking that would have been an even better book to write about <laughs> doing the, both teams at once—the Celtics and right. then the Red Sox—in the same year, because two of these iconic teams in different ways: one with the greatest team of all time in basketball, and two, the, the greatest, you know, tease and and yeah. epic failure of, of, of a baseball season. And I, I lived every day of it for 14 consecutive months, and no one else can say that. No one will ever be able to say that. And and I was I was part of it, and. <clears throat> excuse me and actually picked a, a perfect time to to get out to to leave the Celtics because the work had been done there. I saw that team get built. I saw them play the Lakers in the finals twice. They were going to win the NBA in the spring of 86. It was the playoffs weren't that good, frankly. They were they were they were 50-1 at home. They didn't play the Lakers yeah, no again. Yeah, the Lakers, yep. And and there was nothing close about it. It was a coronation and it was great, but I had seen enough. I brought him home and passed him back to Ryan and then took on this Red Sox team, which no one expected was going to do anything, and had this incredible wire to wire first place team that advances to the seventh game of the World Series and of course the comeback against the Angels and Clemens being MVP in twenty four and four and and you know, Hall of Famers Rice and Boggs and as you say, Bill Buckner knocking in hundred and two runs and the way it ended, uh, and that that got me started in my book writing career. I did a book called One Strike Away about the eighty six sox and and then I wrote the Curse of the Bambino a couple years later when they kept coming up short in the postseason. and that that enabled me to to be really the the chronicler of of the entire surge to the greatest Fenway, the greatest New York, excuse me, New York, Boston rivalry, the Boston Red Sox, and Yankee thing culminating in 03 and 04 yeah. with the Sox winning for the first time in 86 years. So I am lucky. I, I picked, I had good beats and I fell into it. I made good decisions and was around some of the most epic moments in the history of American team sports, never mind just Boston. I mean, to be part of that Celtic team and to be part of that Red Sox collapse and then part of that Red Sox-Yankee thing into 03, 04, those stories were biblical and will always be.
1: Yeah and I mean you are from Gorton or Gr- Gorton uh Gratton. Gratton, excuse me Groton High School how, holy cross I mean you're from the area right
0: I mean so Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up with it so I had the I knew what I was seeing I knew how much it meant to the people in the region because we have great readers here great fans and they really care about it and you cannot replicate that
1: Yeah and you know as, as someone who's been a season ticket holder for some pretty bad Sabre seasons. I I, yeah. I I always think about what it must have been like to be an 86 Celtics season ticket holder. You know, I mean, what did they see? One loss. You didn't year. see many losses. They <laughs> were 51 at home. <laughs> One loss the whole year. Again, the book is called uh, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics uh, by the great uh, Dan Shaughnessy, who you can find on Twitter, of course. And you can buy this book, you know, wherever you buy them. I need to tell you where to buy books. Um, and, of course, you can still uh, follow and, and read uh, Dan's work. Uh, Like I said, a good follow on Twitter. Best way probably to uh, click around to the different things he's done. I'll give you a chance to mention anything you want to promote, but I'll kind of get you out of here on this. I was curious if you remember and what you can tell me about the column you had written that you deleted when the ball got through Buckner's legs.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, we had a lot of, you know, Lee Monfield was in the press box that night and, and Bob Ryan and Kevin DuPont. We had a lot of firepower there and uh, everybody's working on different things. Dave Henderson hit a home run to put him ahead, uh, let's see, four to three. They ended up being ahead five to three in the bottom of the the 10th inning, so they scored twice to take a two-run lead. And when Henderson hit the home run, it it hit the Newsday sign left field, and Henderson had been a big hero in 86 uh, when the Angels series. They were down three games to one. He had a two-run home with the whole Donnie Moore thing. And – so Dave Henderson had these two magical home runs, and he was kind of a little-known guy and a wonderful guy. And so I had started a column about how he, we were going to get him a, skull, a, a statue, a statue for Dave Henderson. Let's go. You know, he's just brought the Red Sox their first World Series in 68 years. So I was pretty far into my Dave Henderson statue column for the Sunday Globe, and that, that ball hit the sign at, at midnight on a Saturday night, and it was the night you turned the clocks back in October. And uh, there was a lot going on. And so we were on deadline. I hardly looked up. You know, they got the two outs, nobody on, 5-3, right. this is it. And then uh, the first couple of singles, I just started to look up a little bit. And You know, when Knight hit the third single, and now it's 5-4, and you got first and third, sort of gets your attention, and they brought in Stanley, and it had our attention after that, the wild pitch, and then the little dribbler behind the bags, the whole thing. And, man, that was you never saw more copies. Torn up quickly as as we had then. It was a uh, a lot of uh, audibling at the line of scrimmage at that moment, and and writing a uh, really hard stories. It it was great training to learn how to change everything on deadline because there would be nights later on with you know the Pats trying to go 19 and 0, changed at the last minute, and Aaron Boone game 2003, changed at the last minute. So I, I had a lot of uh, preparation for those kind of moments and. And that's why you need to be a little bit detached when it happens, so you you're not crying in your pillow and you can produce a story on deadline.
1: I always thought I know it's pretty much all that's lost to history, but I thought one of the great sports books of all time could have been the deleted columns. You know what I mean? It, oh if, yeah. If uh, if 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 somehow there was foresight to save all that stuff, it's like before you hit backspace. Well, now I mean, probably then, you know, whatever on the typewriter or whatever. Although '86, not that long ago. Um, but, uh, you know, those, that could have been quite the book, all those columns from uh, the great sports writers who who wrote probably these beautiful pieces about, you know, like you said, the statue of Dave Henderson or, or whatever and um, <laughs> lost the history. because What uh, could have been? They're all there been. somewhere, uh, again,
0: somewhere in the ether.
1: I'll say it one more time. I uh, wish it lasted forever. Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. What else do you want to mention in terms of plugs and where you want people to go and what you want them to read and things like that?
0: No, you've done a good job in this. Uh, yeah, I wish it lasted forever. Life with the Larry Bird Celtics, you can get there on Amazon. Should be good with that. And um, local bookstores, and if they don't have it, tell them to order some more. And uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Everybody's read this book, really liked it, and I include some of the Celtics. So thanks for having me on, Steve, and I wish you luck with the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, it was an honor to have you, and I hope you have a great success with the book and, uh, and a great December uh, holiday season and all that. Thank you so much. All right, take care, man. I was a little too tall. Could've used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down.
2: She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes. Points on our own. way up, high.
1: Way up firm and high. I want to That's thank Dan to Shaughnessy window, for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can check out all the episodes of the podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com/slash sports casters. But we're not quite to that point yet. It's a book club update first, and again, that book was Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. Also, the book club, we've been working on another book uh, by Dana O'Neill called The Big East, and we're going to finish that one out in a minute. Uh, As soon as I'm done here, we're going to go to Dana. uh, Her book, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. Uh, is really one of the good books I've read this year, and we'll talk to Zayn about it in a minute. So that means there is one book left in the book club in 2021, and it's a big one. It's a weapon, practically, this thing. HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of the New Frontiers, Tinderbox by James Andrew Miller, the New York Times bestselling author. Uh, He was, of course, on this show back when his book Uh, Those guys had all the fun about ESPN came out. He writes oral histories and long ones, and he's done them on ESPN, Saturday Night Live, uh, the talent agency CAA, uh, and now this one, his latest tinderbox. And the excerpts have been everywhere, uh, whether they be about The Sopranos or about Game of Thrones or HBO Sports, all kinds of excerpts from from the book and James Andrew Miller is scheduled to be on this show and on the last one. Now he's been scheduled several times and plans have changed. I said to the PR person at the publisher, just tell me, is this actually happening? And she assures me it is happening. So assuming as it does, uh, James Andrew Miller will be on Tinderbox on the next episode. will be on the Sportscaster's on the next episode of this podcast to promote tinderbox hbo's ruthless pursuit of new frontiers and that's it for the book club in 2021 and we'll get back at it in 2022 and there's some big books coming out in 2022 that i'm really excited uh to cover one's about ricky henderson uh jeff perlman should be uh out with his bo jackson book at some point next year um what else is there I'm trying to open up i have a list Uh, where I keep track of the different books that I am hoping to cover so that I can remember to reach out. Uh, And I have, let's see, we got Coach K by Ian O'Connor, Ricky Henderson by Howard Bryant, Playmakers by Mike Florio. I would never had Mike, so I'll try to get him. And then Jeff Perlman's book about Bo Jackson. So I'm hoping for those, and of course there will be others. uh, And there's already more that have been announced that I have my eye on. Uh, so that's it for the book club in 2021. It was a lot of reading this year. Uh, and maybe we'll go through it in the next show about what those books were. Um, Glory Days was probably my favorite. Uh, the John Wertheim book over the summer. Uh, also, You Were Looking Live, I really enjoyed. Um, some of the ones backed by the pandemic, I, en- I enjoyed. Um, although I guess those were maybe last year. We'll talk about it next next week in this spot. What you know? What were the best? What were the hits? What were the misses of the book club in 2021? All right, let's. We got more business tonight, though. Let's take a break and let's close out the Big East uh, with Dana O'Neill. Our next guest today. She grew up in Stockton, New Jersey, uh, and is a graduate of Penn State. She worked for the Philadelphia Daily News as well as ESPN where she covered college basketball. Today she's doing the same for The Athletic and she has a new book out about the Big East and its glory days in the 1980s and beyond. She's making her debut on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Dana O'Neill. Hey Dana, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for being on. really excited. The book, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference, In college basketball history, that's the Big East. Uh, We'll talk about it in a second. I read it, enjoyed it. I know a lot of the listeners read it too. Got quite a few emails on it. It's a book I thought of existing before it existed. You know, it's like one of those topics where I was like, someone should really write a book about the classic Big East from the, you know, from the 80s and and into the 90s and so on. And you did it. So you read my mind on that one.
2: (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny that you—it's funny that you say that because when someone reached out to me about writing a book about the Big East, I was like, "Well, surely that's already been done," right? right. <laughs> that was <Yeah>. my reaction, <laughs> and it wasn't. I was like, "Well, okay, then, sure."
1: I think I think one time I was uh, I had Jeff Perlman on after one of his books, and I was going through topic ideas, and he was saying if it would be a good idea, bad idea, whatever. It, Cause I always like trying to get him to write a hockey book. He's never going to do it, but I always say you should write a hockey book. And uh, <laughs> so I was going through, and I know I said the big East. I know he said, Oh, that's a good topic. I just don't know college basketball or something like that. You know? So, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Honestly, like I said, I, I just assumed it had been done. And uh, I mean, it's just such a, treasure trove of stories and great storytellers. That's the best part. It's not like there are not just great stories. The people who are willing to tell the stories are just so good at it, so it was not difficult to get people to talk, that's for sure.
1: Well, let's just jump in since we're here anyway. Um, yeah, sure. You know what you did, and a lot of people do this, you tricked me into thinking I was going to read a sports book, and you threw a little business at me. James Andrew Miller did this with um, the ESPN book. Um there's a couple other ones that come to mind but um it's a tricky way to disarm me um from being intimidated by a business book and reading a business book. Tell me about reporting on it. Did you go in thinking wow, there's going to be a lot of business aspects to this or did it come through the reporting or how did the sports book that became a sports business book hybrid emerge?
2: Yeah, honestly, it was really through the reporting. I kind of tried to go in with the idea that, okay, this is a great league with great stories, great moments, um, and I need this to be a narrative, right? I want this to be storytelling and people taking you behind the scenes of these great moments and how they kind of happened and what was going on behind the scenes to make them, but you can't tell those stories without going into sort of the big, the broader picture of the Big East, how it formed, why it formed. And then how it really did change the scope of college basketball. And that, of course, takes you down the business path, as you mentioned, with TV and TV partnerships and all of that. So it it was sort of, I don't know, it was sort of unintentional, but you kind of can't tell one without the other. You kind of can't tell the fun, crazy stories without telling the business, and you can't tell the business without the crazy stories. So they kind of work together.
1: Every time I read a book about something that emerged in this era um i think of uh in the summer john Mortheim had a book called glory days about the summer of 84 Mm -hmm. Uh, they talked a little bit about the emergence of say like the wwf in the 80s or the nba in the 80s it seems like there's always a visionary who understood cable before anyone else understood cable and in your book it's dave gavitt right like he's this guy who was a visionary that saw cable and what it would mean and how it would build his league. Um, what about that? The, the, the
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, Dave, Dave Gavitt was a visionary in, in every which way because he saw the Big East even before anybody else. Everyone else was like, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of the coaches pushed back and thought, you know, we got a good thing going here. We don't need to do this. And he looked at what the ACC was doing he was like, no, no, we can be much better if we're together than separate. So that was the first part of his vision. But, yeah, he understood the importance of cable television and, and what it could be. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine now, like, especially for people who weren't around then. But, you know, college basketball wasn't on television every game, certainly wasn't on television. National television wasn't a thing. It was very regionalized. It was very much your local affiliate, carried a couple of your games, and that was it. But Dave was like, no, no. If we can partner with this crazy idea of an all-sports 24-hour news channel, we can take our game across the country. And, and people, like, it's not just your own backyard. And all of a sudden, you know, Mike Hopkins, who was a Syracuse assistant coach for years, tells a great story in the book about growing up in California and riding home on his bike as fast as he can because he wanted to watch big Monday games Pacific time. Yeah. That wasn't going to happen without cable television. Like kids in California weren't going to have a clue about Georgetown basketball without cable TV. And Dave Gavitt understood that.
1: Yeah. I always think of, you know, like if you think of SEC football, you think of three thirty Saturday, right. On CBS. Yep. And when I think of big East basketball, I think of big Monday Seven o'clock, the Big Twelve game after. Usually, I'm a Oklahoma guy, so I watch a lot of Big Twelve. And you never got to see the first three minutes of the Oklahoma game because <laughs> the Big East game was always inevitably overtime, or yep. you know, some classic Syracuse Georgetown battle or something uh, running in. But I just when I think of the Big East, really when I think of college basketball, one of the things I start with is seven o'clock, Big Monday, yep. a Big East game.
2: Yeah and it, and it look it changed it changed college basketball because at the time I mean prior to people were interested in college basketball I don't mean to say that but it had their unique fan bases kind of in their pockets that made big college basketball kind of must much, much watch TV and they got lucky look I mean it it's one thing to put a product on television and bring it to the masses it's another to put that product on television I mean the games were epic like you said they went overtime they were fierce they were nasty they and the timing of it could not have been better. They had great college basketball games brought nationally at the same time that Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, Pearl Washington, Ed Pinkney, Roosevelt—all these great players are coming of age. So you throw out the ball, and you've got some of the best players in college basketball history playing with some of some of the craziest and best college basketball coaches on the sideline. It was it was like a television drama slash sitcom. With a basketball in the middle middle of it. It was unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy too. And one thing I didn't know or think of, maybe I knew didn't think of it going into the book was that in the forty years prior to the Big East, there was like three national championships for teams in the I guess the region that the Big East looked to expand yeah. expand into. And the Big East was really the driving force of kind of the having the quality of basketball from that. Part of the country emerge, if that's the right way to put it, and that's something I kind of learned from the book.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Like there were so many great high school kids in the Northeast, of course, because you know playground basketball in New York and everything.
1: Right, the Mecca you think of that hundred
2: percent. Yeah, but they didn't stay home. They were all going to the ACC because the ACC was more organized. The ACC had more appeal. Even the Big Ten. So that was what Dave was like, well, wait a minute. Why are we letting all these guys leave here when we could get them to stick around? And, I mean, yeah, that was the fabric of it. It was, it was the kids in the back in staying home to play basketball. And then all of a sudden, East Coast basketball became like a brand, if you will. I hate that word, but that's kind of what it was. Like People wanted to stay home and people wanted to be part of East Coast basketball, where before they were kind of like, eh, we'll go somewhere else.
1: Right, like a a Mullen. Chris Mullen doesn't yep. stay St. John's, if not for Big East. He's, you know. Nope. In this... No, and Patrick yeah. Ewing. I mean, yeah. Patrick Ewing Patrick was Ewing. being
2: lured by UCLA or, you know, uh, and he could have gone sure. to Chris Mullen, maybe goes to Carolina or someplace down there. But they realize, well, I don't have to. I can, I can stay here or stay in this footprint at the very least. You know, Patrick went from Boston down to D.C., but in the same footprint, if you will, and get everything I need out of it
1: you do a good job in the book writing about the games that you just think of off the top of your head when you say Big East. You know, like someone says to me, well, what was a great game from Big East? I go, oh, well, there was the six overtime, Syracuse, you kind of in the guy. Look, like, you do a good job covering those, but you also kind of led me to a few games that were kind of off my radar a little bit and, and, and amplified those as well. It's not just... It's not just the greatest hits you go you go into the deep cuts, you know it's not just stairway to heaven and rock and roll, you know you get into the deeper cuts of the album or whatever. Can you share with the listeners maybe a game or two that's a little bit off the radar that you dug up in the book um maybe to illuminate that point a little bit?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think so that's kind of so the idea for me when I wrote the book was to go from big moment to big moment, right because that's kind of like you said people think right. of oh, the sweater game, the six overtime. But to get to those big games, you have to have kind of the little games, if you will, right? I mean, to get to the Manly Fieldhouse's closed game, you have to set the table for why that mattered. And why that mattered going forward was, you know, the small games where, you know, Roosevelt, Bowie, and Louis Orr come to Syracuse, and they own the place. Like, <laughs> they're they're killing everybody, and nobody can win in Manly Fieldhouse. And here along comes Georgetown— you know, kind of finding their way. They weren't that great. John Thompson was getting a lot of backlash, you know, young black coach um, hired out of high school that nobody thought was a really good fit or a good idea necessarily. And they come into this game, you know, not with the with the aura that we know Georgetown of. That's kind of the background of that whole story Is is not who Georgetown became, but who they were coming into it. I thought that was kind of one of the interesting ones background wise and then you know the whole build up to to Seton Hall's run in 1989 i thought was really interesting because you know Seton Hall gets to this game and and, and plays in the final, gets to the final four and then has this epic game against Michigan but you know by the time like nobody in New Jersey even knew where Seton Hall was because they were such an afterthought <laughs> they you know they went around CBS yeah. i think went around and interviewed people like where's Seton Hall and they were like oh well um, you know, because they weren't interesting. You know, they weren't very good for a long time. But over the course of that season, they kept kind of upsetting teams with their defense. And and people slowly kind of got on the bandwagon. So there's so many of those small moments, I thought, that make the big moments. And um, Yeah, that's kind of what I that's was like sort at. of the essence of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. kind
1: of was getting at. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think the last couple of days in college sports kind of illuminated the fact that
2: yeah.
1: coaches are such a big part of it, you know, with Lincoln Riley and yep. uh, Brian Kelly sleezing out on their teams. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it made me think of the book, not because of the coaches in this book were sleazes necessarily, um, but just because they're such important, you know, characters, larger than life characters, the players come in, they make their mark, they have their three to four years and they're gone. But Jim Beheim, I mean, he's still the coach at Syracuse. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like, um, and there's such great parts of the book as well. You mentioned um, John Thompson. You know, mm-hmm. I just mentioned Beheim, uh, uh, PJ. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the coaches. What about the coaches and their role in the league? And I mean, it really was when you put this together. You know, you had the universities coming together, great, but man, some real rock star type coaches. Yeah. You know, really helped yeah, to build again, this. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, like, I don't want to say they were lucky, but the timing of it could not have been better. You know, you've got John Thompson kind of getting hired at Georgetown, Jim Bayheim literally getting hired after Roy Danforth at Syracuse and trying to build Syracuse. Lou Carnoseca is kind of is getting things rolling at St. John's, PJ Carlissimo comes into. Seton Hall, a young Rick Pitino walks into, you know, Providence. I mean, you think about just the Rolly Massimino is sort of this serial climber trying to get a big job, and all of a sudden he lands at Villanova and figures it out. Everything worked because the coaches were, first of all, exceptionally good coaches. I mean, X's and O's and just great recruiters. But they were such showmen, too. I thought that was kind of, you know, they all had these personalities that played off one another. I mean, Jim Beheim was the whiner, and Louie was like this charming little run around crazy Italian guy and Roly Massimino <laughs> was out of his mind flailing his arms and John Thompson just scared the be- Jesus out of everybody. You know, PJ was the jokester. It all worked so well, but they were, you know, they were they were the lore for the players too. I mean, the Big East obviously was part of the lore too, but John Thompson, you know, was the reason that Patrick Ewing felt comfortable at Georgetown. Chris Mullen knew Luke Karnasek for ages. That's why he wanted to play for St. John's. Pearl Washington, you know, Jim Bayheim had been recruiting him for years. So all of those relationships made a difference. You know, Rick Petino just, you know, saw something in Billy Donovan that nobody else saw, frankly. Um, he got all these Hall of Fame coaches sort of either at the early part of their career or kind of coming into the the mid the Really important part of their careers all coming together as forces. It was, it really was unbelievable. I didn't even mention Jim Calhoun. Jim Calhoun comes from Northeastern. Nobody knows who Jim Calhoun is. Nobody thinks UConn belongs in the Big East. And he just worked his rear end off and wins more national titles in the Big East than anybody else. It, it's just, it was unreal how it all worked. And they were such unique. People and they still are. Frankly, those who have the, those who are still with us, of course, there's there's nobody like them. There's nobody like them.
1: Now I know there's an element to this question that they beat each other, right? Uh, my brother was mm-hmm. on um, the 2013 national championship team at Yale and um, in hockey. And the conference that year was so good that in the tournament they only lost to each other, right? Yeah. So there's only one championship to win, and I get that. Um, but you think of the '80s as being such a boom period for the conference, but there's really only the two back-to-back titles, right? Do, do you think that they yep. do you think they didn't win as much as they should? Of
2: no, I think I think if you think about it, I mean, you know, you get three teams in the final four in '85 in and almost four. Boston College right. almost makes it four for four. So you're right. I mean, basically, only one right. Only one team can win. But if you think about a league that formed in 1979, by 1984, you know, Georgetown has a championship. 85, Villanova has a sure. championship. 87, you know, they're playing for, you know,
1: Syracuse. Providence
2: yeah. of yeah. all teams, is playing for a Final Four. Syracuse is playing for a Final Four. Seton Hall in 89. I mean, you know, I think people would argue that, yeah, you can only have one championship. But the fact that they were just, So many of them were vying for a championship. That was always Dave Gavitt's goal, is that it wasn't just one or two teams carrying the league, but that everybody was elevated by the competition. And certainly they were. But to your point, in its heyday, I mean, I remember covering Big East tournaments where where fans kind of chose, do I go to the Big East tournament or to the NCAA tournament? And a lot of them chose the Big East because they knew it was going to be tougher and more entertaining frankly than the first round of the ncaa tournament and yeah. it was i mean it was brutal and it you was get the absolutely garden. brutal yeah
1: and you get, and you the, get garden. the garden yeah
2: yeah i mean you know what syracuse did with jerry mcnamara what kemba walker did with uconn i mean that was harder than winning in the right. ncaa tournament by a lot
1: and like that syracuse team was not going to the tournament if they don't win no. that yeah which people 100 percent
2: not yeah. nope people yeah people loved it like yeah that like they were not going to the tournament I mean, and, and they just kind of marched through the garden on, you know, Jerry McNamara's limping around on, on one hip. I mean, it was unbelievable what he did in that game. Yeah, he, that, s- that he stole
1: that bid. You know, he stole a bid from someone in
2: totally some did. mid-major <laughs> or whatever.
1: Some mid-major team would, there's a fan of some mid-major team screaming at the radio right now saying, it was us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, those are definitely some legendary performance. And you know what? The, the unique thing about college basketball too, which sometimes I forget, is that Final Four is so big that that of course everyone wants to win the championship, but the Final Four banner is almost just as big. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's unique to that sport, where the Final Four is the thing just as much as the championship is the thing in a
2: way. I, I agree with you. I mean, certainly you're right. Everybody wants to win the whole yeah, thing, and, and when you get yeah. to a certain level of program, right? When you get to a certain level of program, that's all you want. Like if you're Duke, you're Kentucky. I get that. But for a Providence, for a Seton, Seton Hall, Hall, yeah, exactly, if, Yep. yeah, for a, a young Syracuse team under Jim Beheim, making that, you know, Villanova even had they not won the national championship, making the Final Four was such a feather in their cap to establish the program because you know it, you you that is that is a line of demarcation in college basketball It still is like I think you make the Final Four. And you're right. People hang a banner in the gym for making the Final Four. You don't necessarily do that in the college football playoff.
1: I don't think. Yeah, no, it doesn't translate mm-hmm. to college football. Even though it, it is a Final uh-uh. Four, but it doesn't. You know, having watched yeah, several weird. Oklahoma teams get their ass kicked in these games, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think back and be like, oh man, I, next time I I'm in Norman, I really gotta admire that, um, you know, that fourth yeah, place right. banner that, that, or that, whatever.
2: That yeah, semifinal banner. It right, it doesn't translate. Yeah, the final four is always like it's right, it's the road to the final four. That's how the how yeah. the NCAA builds it, right? And it's a build up to get to this year to New Orleans. So the whole goal is to make the final four. And the fact that you know all four teams are in one city in one weekend and it's done, it's like an event. So I think that's if you think about it really it's kind of brilliant marketing, I guess is what it really boils down to, but it, it does sort of change sort of the the aspect of making the final four as an accomplishment, as opposed to just a means to an
1: end. Yeah, and I think it's the bracket too. Like it, yep. the, the office yep. pools, you're you're going around to the office. You're saying who's your final four, just as much as saying right. who's your champion. You know what That's I mean? Right. It's it's Absolutely. like those four winners. And I remember going to Pittsburgh for my brother's. When well, I said my brother was in a, a frozen four, mm-hmm. uh, but a similar thing. They were, in the, they were in the first game on, on Thursday, and I remember just thinking, like, man, they better win today. Because if they don't, we're going to be home in Buffalo <laughs> before the second game ends, and it's going to feel really anticlimactic in a way. Right, um,
2: right. I, was I really there? Yeah, <laughs> was I really
1: even there? You know, luckily they won that game in overtime and got to – then it made it a weekend. You know, then we were there all weekend and yep. – and, and, cashed it on saturday but um yeah i would sometimes I'll, I'll, when i'll be thinking about a final four that's the hardest team to remember the team that lost the first game um on saturday yeah you know what i mean it's, i agree with you yeah.
2: i agree with you i remember covering villanova in uh 2009 so they have this epic run to make it to the final four scotty reynolds hit the coast-to-coast layup
1: yeah you know, to beat Oh, you make- OU, that Scotty Reynolds boy there. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Then in, and then in 09, they get to the Final Four, and they get their doors blown off by Carolina in the first game, and it was like, but th- who remembers that? <laughs> Surely no one. <laughs> Speaking of
1: doors being blown off at the Final Four, I don't know if anyone's quite had their doors blown off in the OU and Villanova game a few years ago. No, I was at that game. Oh, I was sitting on the bedside.
2: I was sitting on the benchside mid court, and I can still see Buddy yeah, with the over his head, yeah, poor just Buddy with his he head heals. in his hands, like "What in the world just happened to me?" I, yeah, that was unprecedented.
1: I mean, if they played that game a hundred times, they'd never lose it as bad as that one. I mean, that no, was uh-uh. that was the epic. Everything went yes. incredibly wrong. Game for sure. Um, Absolutely. Oh man, Absolutely. that was a beating <laughs> that, and they lost that one. That was the year they lost the college football semi two by forty. I think they they lost, like, the two Final Four games by almost 100 points. Um, That's not good. <laughs> combined. But, yeah, you know, it's an interesting league because you have the early championships and then you have, mm-hmm. you know, Calhoun breaking through in 99 and Baham breaking through in 2003 and then the second era of Villanova yeah. with Jay Wright getting a few. Who do you think the next – and this is maybe the last thing about the book and then I'll ask you one or two One, – we'll get one quick one mm-hmm. in on current – but football kind of ruined the league in a way. Um, yeah, it's not the same, obviously. Um, but it's still a league, and they still are at the Garden, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they're still producing champions. Um, certainly Absolutely. Villanova. Who's who's the next Big East team, or maybe who's the next team that's part of the Big East in our hearts? Maybe they're in a different conference now. Um, but you know, a character in the a team that's a character in this book that you think can kind of break through and win a championship. Is there a program bubbling right now from the, like I said, classic Big East or current that you think can break through?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if breakthrough is the right term. I I certainly think UConn can return, right? That's the obvious one. You know, I think that's, I think Connecticut uh, coming back to the Big East was like coming back home for them. That's where they belong. They never should have left in the first place. They never Mm -hmm. should have backed football. And now they've got the right guy in charge of it. I mean, Danny Hurley is, as Northeast and, and, you know, Big East as you need to be. And I think that they are, poor, you, know, the, you know, Val Ackerman made no bones about why they added UConn back. He said that that's a team that can win national championships, and that's what we need. It can't just be Villanova. So I think that they are the obvious choice Good point. to get back. Um, you know, I think St. John's can get things rolling again. I, I feel like they're on the right run here. They, they've had some stumble. They just have not had the right coach. They've got to get their footing. I, I've contended for years that. For the new Big East, I hate that word, but for the new Big East to kind of get really great again, they need St. John's and Georgetown to be great again. Because that's that's the brand, right? I mean, St. John's, Villanova, mm-hmm. UConn, Georgetown, those are the schools that are maybe identifiable Providence. as Big East. Yeah,
1: maybe Providence. Yeah,
2: Providence too. And I think yeah. Providence has had its moments. I really do. I think, I think they've been pretty solid throughout. I mean, even Seton Hall. I mean, look, Seton Hall –
1: had a great run
2: with Miles Powell and everything Mm -hmm. like that. And they're good. They're really good. I think Kevin Willard has established a brand of basketball that he wants his team to look like. It's like, you can tell a Seton Hall team. So I think that they are good enough and getting good enough players to kind of break through again as well. I think they might have, you know, with Miles Powell, but you know, COVID and all (laughs) that fun. So, you know, you never, you never know, but I think those teams, um, you know, Seton Hall, certainly Providence to a degree, but I think if St. John's and Georgetown, can get it rolling again that would really help the league rebuild itself i mean not that it's not built but you know what i mean like really become stronger
1: one of my all-time favorite big east moments it was a recurring one was um mike francesa watching the end of a saint john's tournament game on the air um (laughs) it's always (laughs) make for just a great dog dog St. John's has got to get a bucket on this trip, dog, or it's gonna be yeah. a, it's gonna be a short trip to the tournament, dog. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's a terrible Francesa. Um, the book is called "The Big East: Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball," and I can't think of a better um, Christmas gift for a college basketball fan near you uh, than this. And it starts off with the cable visionary—that's uh, been a theme in so many books and then is filled up with the characters and stories between the coaches and the teams and the games uh, that you think of, and then kind of has the villain at the end of college football. Um, Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend it. The author is Dana O'Neill. She's been nice enough to spend a ton of time with me on a Thursday morning, and I appreciate that a lot. Dana, what's the Twitter? Uh, It's at Dana O'Neill Writer, I believe. Yep. And uh, what else would you want to plug? And then I got one more for you on the way out.
2: (laughs) Well, that's perfect. I appreciate you plugging the book tremendously. It's been, like I said, a lot of fun to write. And, uh, you know, I think people will enjoy it. It's it's nostalgic in terms of people who grew up in that era. But I think it's also relevant as we continue to go through conference realignment to see sort of what football does and has done or worse however you want to pick your sides on that one
1: are you doing signed copies or is there a website you prefer people buy it on or anything like that are you just sure there,
2: i mean anywhere you know hopefully local bookstores i always support local bookstores yeah. in the area if you can go there first go there but amazon barnes and noble through the penguin random house website are also available um i'm trying to work on some signings i'm supposed to be doing some actually just haven't had dates yet with like coach Beheim and coach Calhoun we're going to are oh. kind enough to do some Q&A like I'll do a Q&A interview and we'll awesome. do sign some books we're just probably after the holidays at this point let them get through everything but sure. that's, that's on the horizon.
1: All right, very last thing I'll get you out of here on this. I'll yeah. do I'll do one current one. Um coach K, it's it's the long goodbye this year, I guess to coach K. <laughs> yes. I kind of felt like COVID broke coach K in a way. It seemed like more than anyone he really didn't want to be playing last year, I didn't think. Um, Mm -mm. You know, I just felt like he, maybe he just didn't think it was right. Maybe he didn't think it was safe. I don't know. I just felt like, I felt like COVID broke him. I wasn't surprised when I heard this was going to be his last year. Here's my question, because I was a little surprised. I shouldn't have been, but I was a little surprised that they um, were able to get the huge early win over Gonzaga and um, ascend to number one so quickly. I should never be surprised with Duke. But I guess the question (laughs) is this. Do they have the team, in your opinion, to send Coach K out like John Elway, or do you think they're going to send him out more like Drew Brees, um, (laughs) you know, who the team was good and they went 12-4, and but it just broke down at the end and, you know tom brady jerry cook fumbled i don't know i'm losing the analogy here but i'm wondering do they <laughs> go out do they go out like this coach K go out like way, or is it on some other way in your opinion what do you think yeah you know,
2: i i think duke is one of a handful of teams with gonzaga with certainly purdue as we're seeing with right, kansas baylor, baylor yeah. who are good enough to win a national championship i really do i think you know Paolo banquero provided his health. I mean, he's this situation where he's getting all these cramping issues is, is kind of alarming. But it, he is ridiculously good. I mean, he's just a, a difference maker. I think you know Trevor Keels is a, has been a monster load that people did not necessarily expect as as a, a, a big guard for Duke. I don't think I certainly didn't see him come in. So yeah, I think that they are good enough to contend for a national championship. Obviously, the Ohio State game the other night. You know, the Buckeyes roaring back yeah. as they did. Yeah. But that's a young team in you know late November. That that's going to happen to you on a on a on a, you know, a road yeah. game. I, I'm not to bigger game to them. Me.
1: Bigger game to Ohio State than Duke. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah, I, I would put Duke in a. You know, I think it's not like last year. I think last year we kind of decided. I think we all knew that Gonzaga and Baylor were the best team in the country on the first day of the season and on the last day of the season we like that did not surprise anybody if they played for a national championship I think this year there's a little bit more wiggle room I think there's maybe like I said five teams that are probably elevated above everybody else but I do think there's a second pack that could sneak in and pull some upsets but I would put Duke and in in that category of certainly capable of sending Coach Krzyzewski out with a title I would I wouldn't be shocked if that happened, let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, and we're also like just still waiting for Gonzaga to break through, break through. You know what I mean? But
2: Yeah.
0: They're uh,
2: young. I mean people people forget, like it's funny, I went out there in October and um they're so good, but you know, they're they're Gonzaga young is, is my verb for them because it's like right. Andrew Nemhard is old but he's only been at Gonzaga for one year. Drew Timmy's only played two years. I mean he's ridiculously good, don't get me wrong. Um you know, Anton Watson is the old player, but he's coming off the bench. Everybody else, you know, is young. So I think the difference between this Gonzaga team and last year's is last year's was pretty much what they were going to be in November. This team, the upside is scary. When they put it all together, it could get it could get real scary for this team. That's why I, I still think they're the best team in the country.
1: Yeah, and it's a topic for another day, but we talked about the Big East teams. Did they win enough? I wonder that about Coach K a little bit when it's all – when you look back at and I know that maybe sounds silly, but man, there's a lot of number one seeded teams. Who, like mm-hmm. all their tournament games were in Charlotte or something, you know, that somehow, <laughs> you know, losing to, like the Indiana loss comes to mind with, you know, they can't get the, Jay Williams can't get the three throws that Jason Williams at the time can't get the three throws. And then they can't get the put back and that team, you know, and they see Maryland win it a couple days later. I don't know. Um, a thought for another time, I guess, but. <coughs>
2: Yeah, I think you can certainly always make a case yeah. of would have been, but as any coach will tell you, the the NCAA tournament at the end of the day can become such a ridiculously crazy crapshoot. Yeah,
1: That's a beast.
2: You know, it, the best team doesn't always necessarily win. It's just a, it's the the most fortunate team. Yeah, so it's hard to you know, win I six still, in a row like that. I still think, you know, over the quality of work that he's contributed, I don't think there's anybody that can probably compete with him at this point.
1: Yeah, legend for sure. All right. The Big East, inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball history by Dana O'Neill, at Dana O'Neill writer on Twitter for more information about the upcoming um, Q&As or signings or whatever it sounds like, some great events on the horizon. Thank you so much for doing this. And then maybe we can do it again as we get closer to March. Um, and, sure. And Be happy to. Yeah, but I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Anything else you wanna get out there that I didn't no. get out there? Okay.
2: I I think we're good. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time very much.
1: I want to thank Dana O'Neill and Dan Shaughnessy for being on the podcast this week. Don't forget you can find that, this, that, and every episode of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud feed. It's soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can also email me anytime, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. And, of course, on this same Sportscasters feed is the 24-inch podcast. A side project I do with my five-year-old daughter, Paula Bennett, and uh, my good friend from New Jersey, Hollywood, Dave Rollins. It's about the career of Hulk Hogan. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at the number two, the number four, the word inch, and the word podcast. You can also email us at 24inchpodcast at gmail.com. That show, like I said, is right on this feed. And we also have a Facebook group, which I'd love you to join. Just search 24-inch podcast on Facebook. Click groups and uh, request to join there, and we'll let you right in. Uh, it's been a really, uh, really great group so far uh, and really enjoying that. Also, uh, don't forget to check out uh, my friend Peter Winson and his show Greetings from Allentown. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at GFAllentownPod. Uh, and not only does he do the Greetings from Allentown show, he also does Greetings from Allentown Live. Uh, With his friend Keithy. And uh, they had done. Goodfellas before. uh, And now they're to Casino. And going through that. uh, With incredible detail and humor. And uh, I've really enjoyed that. So check out Peter. uh, And Keithy. And everything else for more information. Of course about Greetings from Allentown. It's at GF Allentown Pod. There. Alright one last thing for me today. And it's a good time of year. uh, To consume content on streaming services. Uh, it seems like every streaming service I have, and unfortunately there's a lot of them, uh, has some really good stuff either out or coming out. Uh, it's the end of the year, uh, holiday season, whatever the reason, there's a lot of really good stuff. So this is what I've kind of been watching and enjoying or not enjoying recently. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is a documentary. That was is on Netflix, and it's called Azuri. And it's about the 2021 Italy Euro Championship run and the champions that they become. And it's, I believe, recorded by one of the backup goalies. It's incredible access. They make a great film. It is in Italian, but of course, subtitles. And I've already watched it three or four times. There's this really dramatic moment where the guys are just sitting around watching The Denmark game and uh, Christian Eriksen has his near tragedy on the field and you see the reactions there and you get to see him in the training rooms and uh, in the meeting rooms as they prepare for games and uh, hearing their reactions to the goals and the Spinazzola injury and eventually the championship. Really well done. I love that. Also on Netflix, something I did not love, uh, Tiger King is back and I guess it's Tiger King 2 and it's Tiger King stinks. It's terrible. Um I haven't watched all the episodes and I probably won't. Um it's just so bad. Um they struck lightning in a bottle, but I think it was timing more than anything and they had uh the guy that's in jail. They don't have him anymore. Um and it's just brutal to watch. It's horrible. And then I noticed that that wasn't enough. There's more uh Tiger King. Um and that there's a side story about the doctor that had the one zoo, and I I haven't seen that. I don't know if I will, but I think we're done with Tiger King. Um, also on Netflix or something I want to watch but haven't, and that's the Rocks movie Red Notice, uh, but I'll get to that. I hear it's a pretty, pretty good movie and something that's upcoming, the big one on December 31st, New Year's Eve. Paul and I are pumped, and the trailer came out this year or this week. Uh, is Cobra Kai Season 4, uh, the tournament. It's about the tournament, uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to that. Disney Plus is a streaming service that we have because, Paula mostly, I don't watch much on there, but one thing I did watch, and it's one of the best things I've ever watched, uh, is Get Back, the documentary on the Beatles. It's a three-parter. Each part is two hours or more, close to three, and it's just incredible. incredible. Uh, I give this my highest recommendation. Uh, It's so, so good. Um, It's just sitting back and watching the Beatles write songs and figure out if they're going to play them or not. And uh, George Harrison quits the band at one point, uh, and then he comes back, and there's stipulations to that, and it all builds towards uh, their last ever public concert or appearance, which is on the roof of their studios. Uh, And it's unbelievably well done. Peter Jackson uh, was the director of that, and he did an incredible job, and I give it my highest recommendation. It's so good. So, so good. I've also been watching a lot of stuff on HBO Max. Uh, They've had some really strong stuff, including a really nice holiday movie uh, that's right up my alley called 8-Bit Christmas, uh, and it's about Doogie Howser, is the, the main star in it, and he tells his daughter a story. His daughter wants a phone. She's not getting one for Christmas, and it leads to him to tell her a story about when he wanted the 8-bit Nintendo and everything that goes along with that. And everyone who listens to this knows that like the 80s is kind of my thing between Paula and I, and we watched the the movie as a family, and uh, we loved it. Uh, Also on HBO Max, uh, King Richard is a movie about Serena and Venus Williams' father. I haven't seen it yet. I hear really good things. I will watch it. Um, Also, there's the Music Box documentaries. I've seen the Woodstock one, which was released in the summer, and then also the one about Atlantis Morissette, which she was really involved in, but somehow didn't like. I don't know the story there. Uh, But there's one, I guess, that's really good about Kenny G. I haven't watched that yet, but I'll watch them all. Um, There's a new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is incredibly funny, and our friend... Uh, Blake J. Harris has a book coming out about Larry David hopefully next year, Uh, and of course we'll get him on. Another thing I've been watching on HBO Max is a documentary series that I guess was on CNN about the story of Late Night, and it is six episodes about Late Night TV, and I've really enjoyed what I've seen of that so far. Um Man, there's still more. It just keeps going. It seems like there's stuff everywhere. Uh, Paramount Plus has a new episode of the Challenge All-Stars. I haven't watched yet, but I'd like to. I liked the Challenge All-Stars last time. And I also really want to see the uh, new season of the real world, the reunion from the L.A. season. Uh, I see David's back at it with his uh, nutty nutty behavior. Uh, and also... Um, Is it on Paramount? No, Prime. We switch over to Prime Video. Amazon Prime. They have a really great season of their All or Nothing documentary series about Juventus. uh, The incredible soccer club in Italy. And I've been watching that. Again, it's in Italian. But there are obviously subtitles. And I've been enjoying that. And it's helping me learn my Italian. And this is just a special of the many, many, many things that are out there right now to watch. It's a great time to stay home and stream something, I guess, is what I want to say. Stay home with the family and avoid the cold weather and the snow and stream something. And if you want to start with something that's a medium-level commitment, seven hours total-ish, Eight hours, get back. The Beatles thing is unbelievable. Uh, And if you're looking for something that's an hour and you can stand the subtitles, the Italy uh, documentary is great. I know I'm biased there, but I've already watched it three or four times. Um, And Hard Knocks, the Hard Knocks season, in season. I haven't heard as much chatter about it as usually here uh, with Hard Knocks, but that's been really good too. The Colts are an interesting uh, team, and they're a team that's been on the rise as the seasons went on. They got off to a slow start. But they've been doing much better lately, and that makes for an interesting season. And there's some interesting characters there. All right, that's it for today. One episode left in 2021, and then it'll be back next year with the 11th season of the Sportscasters Podcast. We
2: chase